This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Matt Woodley. So I don't know if you heard those verses really carefully that were read, but if you're, you know, a, a postmodern person living in the 21st century, which you all are, um, by the way, in case you didn't notice that, a little alarm bell should be going off. Let me, let me read a couple verses again. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And then Jesus himself says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, We're in a sermon series called Explore God, in which we're exploring six questions about God. And then in the week beforehand, we're meeting in some small groups to talk about these questions. We still have a group going at Emmett's, for instance, Emmett's Restaurant, downtown Wheaton. So if you want to come there, 7 p.m. Um, this Wednesday and next Wednesday, free appetizers. Uh, we'd love to have you. So we'll be discuss- discussing next Sunday's question. But one question we're going to talk about tonight is, is Christianity too narrow? Is it too exclusive? Is it arrogant to say those things? Now, let me just say by way of introduction, there's a second question that's related to it is, If Jesus is the only way, what happens to people that have never heard the gospel? Or they've never even heard of Jesus? What happens to those people? So, because I love you so much, or because I find my identity partially in overachieving, I don't know what, or a combination of both, I wrote another sermon on that question. But I'm not going to give it today. But it's a manuscript, so you can pick it up and read it. Uh, It's sort of a mini-sermon on that second question, what happens to those who never heard? But what about the question, is Christianity too narrow? Because that sounds really narrow. I think a lot of people in our culture, and maybe some of you, line up more with Oprah Winfrey, who said this, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Now, Oprah's actually really good at picking up what's already going on in culture and then just sort of giving it back to people. And I think she's, she's really insightful in that regard. A lot of people say it's like, it's like climbing up a mountain. There's a lot of different ways up the mountain, a lot of different paths, but there's one way. There's, it's the same goal, getting to the top of the mountain. I thought about that this week when I was in Minneapolis. I was talking to my Uber driver a young Muslim guy from Somalia, an immigrant. We had a great conversation. I was thinking, well, how can I say Christianity is the way and Islam is not? That could be a really volatile question, right? This can lead to arrogance. People are afraid it's going to lead to violence against people, oppressing people. Bad things can happen when we get that narrow, or so it seems. I'm going to argue, though, that this is actually a really good question that leads us to a really good place. It leads us into the heart of the gospel. And understanding the gospel, how surprising it is, how radical it is, how revolutionary it is, how life-changing it is. So asking this question is a good question. And living humbly under the leadership, the reign of Jesus, actually makes us less arrogant, more willing to listen to others, more willing and more courageous to go into the dark and violent places of our world with the peace of the reign of Jesus. I'm going to look at three questions. The first question is, why do Christians say that about Jesus? 
Why can't they just be like Jesus' way? Why do we have to just be so stubborn about that? The second question is, is that arrogant to say that? And the third question is, if we believe that as Christians, how does that change us? What kind of people do we become if we hold to that belief? So the first question, <clears throat> why do Christians make exclusive claims about Jesus Christ? And here's the really short answer. Because Christians believe that's what the Bible has taught and that's what the church has taught for over 2,000 years. The Old Testament anticipates it. In the Gospels, Jesus proclaims it. The rest of the New Testament affirms it. And then for 2,100 years, the church has applied it in different cultures and different historical contexts. Our first reading today was from the New Testament book of Acts. It's the first book after the four Gospels. So it's very early, written very early. And it proclaims an incredibly, what scholars call a high Christology. It just means it's a really high view of Jesus. And as you read through this story in Acts chapter 4, which actually starts in Acts chapter 3, you get the New Testament teaching on who Jesus is just in crystal form, really early form. So it, we didn't have time. There was no time to develop into some kind of fantastical legend about Jesus. It was actually a really short historical period. So in Acts chapter, let me give you a little background of this story. So in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, two leaders in the church, they heal this guy who's been disabled from birth. People see it. They see this guy now walking around, and he's leaping, and he's praising God. And a crowd comes, and Peter and John, actually Peter stands up and says, I just want you all to know, uh, we didn't do this. Jesus did it. It's Jesus. And then everybody's thinking, well, who is Jesus? And Peter says, let me tell you who Jesus is. And then in Acts chapter 3 and 4, he ticks off, boom, 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 titles or names for Jesus. This could be a Jeopardy category. Things that Jesus is that no other religious leader claimed. So let me give you some examples. In Acts chapter 3, verse 15, he's called the author of life. Now, it's one thing to call a religious leader a very important character or prophet in the story of life. But here they're saying about Jesus, he's the author of life. He's the guy that wrote the whole story. Another thing, verse 19, it says that Jesus is the one that blots out our sins. He is the purifier of sins. No other religious leader made that claim. See, in the Bible... Every religion agrees that we got a problem. There's something wrong with the world. The world is broken. Differ on what's broken exactly, how it got broken, and how to heal it, but they all agree something's broken and it needs to be fixed. In the Bible and in other religions of the world as well, a very important concept is the concept of sin. Sin is not just bad things we do, but it's a condition we're in. It's something we're born into. And it's something that's relational. It's a broken relationship, primarily between us and God, but also between us and other people, between us and even our, our own inner self, between us and creation. Profound brokenness. That's what sin is. And here's this amazing claim. Jesus is the purifier of sin. When I lived in northern Minnesota, we got an above-ground pool. And our kids used to love swimming in it, well, especially the boys. Um, but the water was like really gross brown color, like the color of clay, which was in the water. 
So I go to my neighbor, my friend, I say, hey, Randy, I got this above-ground pool, and it's just the water. You know the, the clay around here? It's, the water just looks like clay water. He says, what kind of purifier are you using? And I say, purifier? He <clears throat> goes, yeah, you got to have a filter. you got to have a filter. That's what makes the water clean. I thought, oh. So I never bought a filter, but the kids still loved it. <clears throat> but the point of my story is, you need a filter. Your life needs a filter. Jesus is the filter. Jesus is the purifier. In chapter 3, he's called the restorer of all things. What an amazing claim. No other religious leader said, I will restore all things. Nobody said that. My home in East Aurora is about 100 years old. About five years ago, somebody bought it and flipped it. They restored it. They made it new. I love stories like that. Jesus says, I am the restorer of all things. I'm the one who can restore your life, do a reset on your life, begin to restore you to who you were made to be. And that's all through his resurrection from the dead. Because he's alive, he can actually, he's still working. It's still going on. It didn't just happen then. And it's not just personal, it's all of creation. The Apostle Paul says all creation groans for the restoration of all things. Creation has fallen, it's wounded. It's been beaten up, and, and yet Jesus says, there's still beauty in there, but I'm going to restore all things. No other religious leader made claims like that. And remember, we heard in our gospel reading, the early Christians weren't just making this up because it started with Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The final, fundamental question for me, because like maybe some of you, I've really struggled with this question. But the fundamental question for me boils down to this. Do I trust him? Do I trust who Jesus is? He claimed to be an expert on a lot of things. He claimed to be an expert on himself, for starters. He also claimed to be an expert on how the world got broken and how it can be restored. So will I surrender to his authority and expertise? To me, that's what it boils down to. It's like this. Somebody told me that I snore a lot. And, well, I define a lot. I mean, what is that? But apparently, it's a lot. So this person said, you need to go to a doctor and get this checked out. So I went dragging my feet. There's going to be nothing wrong. I don't have sleep apnea. Impossible. So I go to this doctor. He says, yeah, we're going to do a sleep study on you. And I say, fine. But I'll tell you one thing, I am not wearing a CPAP machine. No way. He's like, oh, okay. So we do the sleep study. I meet with him. He says, you know, you have mid-level sleep apnea. You really need a CPAP machine. And I say, I told you, I'm not wearing the CPAP. So I call a friend of mine who's a doctor, get a second opinion. What do you think about this guy? See, I was convinced he was getting, like, kickbacks from the CPAP machine company. I literally thought that. <laughs> so this friend of mine said, the guy's the real deal, Matt. Let me put it this way. Do you want to see your grandkids? Do you want to live longer and enjoy them? Maybe see some great-grandchildren? Wear the CPAP machine. So every night, I put this mask on fire it up, put the distilled water in there, and breathe through the CPAP. I 
think it's making my life better. I'm not sure. But you know what? Why did I do that? Because I came to surrender to the expertise of someone else. I came to surrender to his claim that he's the real deal. Why do Christians surrender to Jesus in all things? in even personal things like finances and sexuality and how we treat the poor and why do we do that? There's only one good reason. It's because you have come to trust his expertise and then you've surrendered to his authority. There's a Christian theologian from Sri Lanka that I have a lot of respect for. His name is Vinath Ramachandra. He came from a Hindu background. He was raised as a Hindu. And he came to Jesus, came to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and, and he came to this conclusion. He said, I really had to wrestle with, the key question for me was, who is Jesus, he said. And he said this, I'll quote, he said, one may search all great religious traditions of humankind and fail to find one like Jesus, who makes seemingly the most arrogant claims about himself and yet lives in the most humble manner. And then Vinoth said, Jesus of Nazareth, simply boggles our imagination. There's no one like him, he said. So he surrendered to his expertise. Let me ask you, though, is this arrogant? Can this lead to oppression, violence, hatred, intolerance? And the question is, yes, it can. And even worse, it has led to those things. Christians have, we have skeletons in our closet. There's no doubt about it. We have things that we need to confess and repent of. And that's why every Sunday at Church of the Resurrection, we, if we can, we try to get on our knees. And before God and each other, we say, we've sinned through thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. And we're sorry. We become people who regularly practice the pattern of repentance. We own up to ways that we've hurt other people or groups of people. But let me ask you this. Is it always arrogant? Is it implicitly arrogant? See, we need to understand one thing. Christians are not the only ones who make exclusive truth claims. Hindus make exclusive truth claims. At the heart of Hinduism is two unbreakable laws of reality, karma and reincarnation. Muslims have an exclusive claim that Jesus did not die for your sins. He was a great prophet, but he didn't die for your sins. That's an abomination to Muslims. Even Buddhists, the Dalai Lama himself said that true enlightenment, he said, comes only, can only be explained in the Buddhist scripture and achieved only through Buddhist practice. What about all, the claim that all religions teach the same thing and we can't know which one is true? Well, that sounds tolerant, but that's an exclusive truth claim too. And a lot of people in the world don't believe that. Every religion, every belief system, atheism, agnosticism, whatever you believe, it has exclusive truth claims in it. It doesn't need to lead to arrogance or oppression. We need a truth, though. See, the problem is not that we want to be right. The problem is that we get self-righteous when we think we're right. So we need a truth that will extract self-righteousness and pride out of our hearts and release love into us. That's the message of the gospel. 
That's where Jesus comes in. That's where it comes in, how radical it is. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10, the scripture reading you heard, it says this. This is Peter talking. He says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. I don't know if you caught that. Jesus of Nazareth. What was Nazareth? Nazareth was a, it was a, it was a podunk town. It was off the beaten track. It was not an important metropolitan area. It was something that was despised by the cultural elites. Can anything come from Nazareth, they said? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Implied no. Even after his resurrection, Jesus is still Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And not only that, he was also rejected. Think of that. This author of life, this Lord of all, this restorer of all things, was re experienced rejection. And not only that, but he was crucified as a criminal. Now, in the history of the world, there is no form of execution more barbaric, more degrading, more disgusting, more dehumanizing than a crucifixion. A Roman senator named Cicero said, we don't even mention that word in polite conversation. Nice people don't say that word because it's so barbaric. Jesus is the one who was crucified. It was reserved for the worst of slaves, the lowest of criminals, human scum. Why is this important? Well, let me demonstrate with my artwork here. And just in case you're wondering, you're thinking, does he know his artwork's not very good? Yes, I know. So <clears throat> this is actually a, um, there you go. So this is from a guy named Leslie Newmagen, who was a missionary and miss missiologist, worked in India most of his life. He had this little diagram, and these are staircases. Staircases up, staircases going up. These would represent the different religions or moral systems by which we climb up to become what we might call a good person, a godly person, a nice person. So these are all the ways we climb up. Every system has it. But God does something remarkable. We think God's going to meet us up here. Get your act together, we'll have a meeting. Me and God, you and God. Instead, the gospel declares that God meets us right here. The Apostle Paul said, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He went on to say, God justifies or God makes right the ungodly. Wow, that's just not what religion is about. Jesus himself said, I didn't come for people who think they're healthy. I came for the sick. I came for people who know they need a doctor. I'm the doctor, Jesus said. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. God meets us here. God comes to justify the ungodly. 
That is astounding. That is God's intervention in our life. It is the most remarkable thing, really, in the history of religious systems. You see how subversive this is to not only religion, but to the way a lot of us think about, in a default heart, we think about Christianity. We think, well, Jesus will forgive me, Jesus will meet me when I get up here, when I reach this goal. He meets us here. Remarkable. I was talking to my Uber driver, remember I mentioned him? I said, how, we were talking about just having a friendly conversation. He was really talkative, I really liked the guy. He said, um, I said, well, how do you know that you're gonna be good enough to be accepted by Allah and to achieve heaven? He said, I don't know, but I'm trying really hard to become a good person. Now, in one way that's admirable, but in one way, it's like, that's the problem. God doesn't meet us here, he meets us here. And then he empowers us to live the life that we should live. If this is true, how could we ever boast about our superiority? Like we had won the prize, we had achieved it. We are a notch above people. That's the opposite, that runs so counter to the whole gospel. Christians should be the people who are, the people that know their brokenness, they know, they live in deep humility. And if self-righteousness ever becomes into our heart, it's like, it's like an infected tooth. And Jesus is the dentist, the dentist. So if you ever struggle with self-righteousness, you need to make a dental appointment with Dr. Jesus. He's got very good office hours, anytime. How does this change us? Well, let's look again at Acts chapter 4, because here are these two disciples, Peter and John, and look at what it was said about them in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So here they are, Peter and John, they're ordinary men. They don't have advanced degrees. They don't have political clout. They, they don't have a lot of significance. They don't have economic clout. And yet there's something extraordinary about it. They are bold. They're loving. They proclaim the name of Jesus and healing starts to happen. People's lives are changed. People start to get restored. The, the guy, the, the disabled man that gets restored, that's, that's also, it was literally happened, I believe, but it's also a metaphor. It's also metaphor, metaphorical for how God wants to restore us in our brokenness. And so the people are astonished. The powerful people are astonished. They realize, oh, I know. These guys have been with Jesus. They have been with Jesus. They met Jesus. They met Jesus here. And Jesus changed their life and is beginning to restore them. So they simply point back to Jesus. Is that arrogant? I suppose you could do it that way, but not necessarily. It actually, to point back to Jesus could be an act of love that brings new life. It's a powerful story in a best-selling book by an African-American author named Tanahashi Coates. He wrote a book called Between the World and Me, which is a, a long essay, basically a, a written work to his teenage son. 
explaining to his teenage son what it's going to be like growing up in America as a young African-American male. And it's not a pretty book. It's searingly honest. Coates says, and I quote, racism is a visceral experience which rips at the black body. Coates is an atheist. He has no hope that things are going to get better, as far as I can tell. He, he lives in absolute despair, and yet he writes so beautifully and poignantly. Towards the end of the book, though, there's this beautiful little story. He tells this story about a friend of his named Dr. Mabel Jones. Dr. Mabel Jones is a devout Christian, also African-American. She grew up as a child of sharecroppers in Louisiana. She went on to, to the Navy, and then she became a physician. She had one daughter and one son, a son named Prince. Prince and Coates were friends. And one day, Prince was stopped by a police officer. The police officer mistook him for a different African-American male that had committed a crime, and Prince was shot and killed by that police officer. And Ta-Nehisi Coates writes about talking to Dr. Mabel Jones about what her church and her faith has meant to her through the years, dealing with that tragedy, dealing with that injustice, dealing with that sorrow. And Coates writes this. He says, I thought of my own distance from an institution that has so often been the only support of our people. I often wonder if in that distance I've missed something, some notions of cosmic hope, some wisdom behind my mean physical perception of the world, something beyond the body that I might have transmitted to you, he writes to his son. I wondered that because something beyond anything I have ever understood drove Mabel Jones to an exceptional life. Isn't that incredible? Here's this atheist saying, it's something beyond anything I have ever understood. I don't get it. But what drove Mabel Jones to an exceptional life? I think Coates is on to it. I think he gets it. It's her faith in Jesus, and it's the church. See, we say this sometimes as Christians in sort of our tradition. We talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, and sometimes that gets overused, but it's true. It's not just bucket religion number one, bucket religion number two, bucket religion number three, bucket religion number four, bucket number five, no religion. It is a personal relationship with a person, the risen Christ, who said in this wonderfully, wonderful claim, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. What an audacious claim. All of you, every person on this planet, I don't care who you are or where you come from or what tribal group or what language you speak, everyone can come to me and you will find rest for your souls. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter if you don't go to church. It doesn't matter how far you've been from God or how lost you feel right now. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. You see, this exclusive Jesus makes this inclusive invitation that doesn't get any more inclusive. Exclusive, I'm the only way. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Inclusive, all who are weary and heavy laden. See, we always think, we sometimes think it's got to be either or. 
It's got to be, I'm tolerant towards people. I love them. I listen to them. I'm kind to them. Or I press into Jesus and his church. No, it's not an either or. It can be a both and. The exclusive Jesus with the most inclusive invitation. So let me ask you, what would it look like for us? We're just such ordinary people, like the disciples, flawed, sinful. We got our problems, we got our questions, we got our doubts. What would it look like for you to surrender to the expertise and the authority of Jesus? You just say, okay, Jesus, a lot of things I don't understand, but I believe you are who you say you are. And you, what you say about the world, what you say about how it got broken and how it can be restored in and through you, your person, I believe that, and I'll surrender to that. I will come under that. See, an exclusive truth, but you can live a remarkably inclusive life. This message of an exclusive truth leading to an inclusive life, it's, it's, it's in the Bible. It's here. It's in the cross. It's at the table. It's in everything we do. Has the love of Jesus, this, in, this Jesus, this Savior, has it been shed abroad in your heart? Listen to this humble God who literally went to hell and back for you and for everyone you know. There's not anyone on this planet that was excluded from that. The one who said, my body given for you, my blood poured out for you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you ready to come under his expertise, his authority, surrendering to him? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.